Welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Lucas Stock. And I'm Jens Nelson. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate and explore and meditate and contemplate and seek and talk about and look into. And d- uh, descend and dive. Descend into the depths of <laughs> theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So today, we are not only descending into the depths of theology, but more specifically, we're descending into the topic of Christ's descent, which I think is probably, you know, based on what we've been talking about this past week as we've been preparing, one of our most, I don't know, interesting topics that we prepared for. It seems like um, it's definitely outside of my comfort zone in terms of things that I've really heard much about or read much about or learned really anything about in terms of school or church or my own time or anything. Um, And it's a topic that I know you're really excited to talk about, to dive deeper into. And it's a topic that we've touched on before, at this point over a year ago, in our episode on the essence of the Christian faith, where we kind of walked through the Apostles' Creed. We spent a good chunk of time talking specifically about the part of the Creed where it says that after he was buried, Christ descended into the dead or descended into hell, depending on your translation. So that kind of sparked, I think, an interest in terms of, at least for me, that was the first time I had ever really done a lot of, you know, talking or thinking in any context about it. And since then, we've, we've not really on air, but I know we've had a couple conversations over the last, you know, several months. And um, there are a couple of really, really good books that have come out within the last year at this point a little more year and a half maybe um on the topic geared towards you know setting this doctrine this this uh idea in a in an evangelical sort of theological context and um we'll we'll get into those i'm sure uh later on but we are first going to kind of talk through this you know this doctrine christ's descent what is it what does it mean what does it not mean what does it mean for us where does it come from? Should we believe in it? Should we, you know, how should we word it? Like, these are all questions that I think are super relevant. And if you're like me, they're questions that you might have an answer to, but probably haven't done a whole lot of really in-depth thinking about. So I know I'm looking forward to learning a lot uh, during this episode, just in terms of getting exposed to things that that I haven't been and hopefully we'll be able to kind of um I don't know just dive into something unique dive into something that maybe doesn't get a lot of airtime or attention in the church today or at least in certain sections of the church maybe and get uh you know learn something about it as we approach uh holy week as we approach holy saturday specifically uh as we kind of you know commemorate this part of Christ's atoning work. So hopefully that, you know, kind of covers it by way of introduction. I don't know if there's any other like preliminary marks remarks you want to make or if you kind of want to just jump right in. Yeah, there um, are a f- there are a few marks. First of all, it is really windy outside. I don't know what's getting picked <laughs> up. I just every once in a while I hear some like whizzing noises, so I apologize about that. Um, but as it pertains to the topic, I I did want to say this this is a complex conversation, um, not necessarily because it's hard to understand, but I think because 
a lot of it is different than our modern conceptions of death, the afterlife. Um, perhaps some of what was just like a given in the Bible, we don't see that way. And so it seems really foreign to us. Um, a, a big part of it is some of the, I don't know, the incorrect ways that these things have been viewed in the past, you know, relating to purgatory, maybe Dante's Inferno. Um, like there are just certain things in our culture, in our society, even in history that have sort of warped our understanding about this doctrine. Uh, so for me personally, like, like Lucas mentioned, it was about a year ago now, we did episode three on the essence of the Christian faith. And we really just wanted to talk about the Apostles' Creed. We wanted to talk about how it really was this um, perfect embodiment of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to confess Christian beliefs and doctrines. And in preparing for that episode, I just remember reading that line of he descended into hell or he descended in, uh, you know, to the dead. And I, at the time, just had this like catch in my spirit almost, or this, that sounds cheesy, but like, I, I just kept getting caught up on that line. Like Christ didn't descend into hell. That doesn't sound right. That sounds too foreign. Um, perhaps it was because I didn't understand it. Perhaps it was because it was never articulated well to me. And so in preparing for that episode, I had read maybe like a dozen articles. Um, I was d doing some scripture studying. And so when we recorded that episode, it was like very fresh on my mind, very fresh in my theological understanding and thinking. And since then, uh, there have been two books that have come out, as well as a couple other more um, scholarly academic articles. But uh, Matt Emerson wrote a really good book called He Descended to the Dead. It's a theology of Holy Saturday. Uh, it's published by IVP Academic, and so it is a little bit more academic. There's a lot of footnotes, a lot of Greek, a lot of Hebrew. Um, so if, if that's something you're not really keen on using, maybe this second book is one that you'd find more... Um, accessible. Uh, but this, this new book, it literally came out like a week, week or two ago, but it's called Crux Moors in Ferry, um, which I think is cross, um, death, hell. I, I can't remember. I think that's what those three Latin terms mean. Um, but it's a primer and a reader on the descent of Christ. So Sam Renahan, and, it, and I should mention it's self-published. I'm pretty sure at this moment, you can only find it on Amazon. Um, also, if you look up Sam Renahan, I think it doesn't pop up. You actually have to look up Crux Moore's In Fairy, and then you'll find it. Um, but it's pretty cheap. You can get a nice paperback edition. They also have a hardcover edition. But it's it's again, it's it's a very um, not basic in the sense that it's elementary, but it's a very um, easy to understand, very accessible um, book on this topic, and one that I highly highly recommend if you have never explored this topic. And if you have, because I think as much as I love Matt's book, it is far more academic and it takes a certain amount of um, rigor and ability to, to read and comprehend more academic works, especially if you're not in those arenas. Um, so Sam does a really good job of making it easy for a common layperson to read and understand. So um, I know that's kind of a long-winded introduction, but I think that's it's good to start there so you understand that as we talk about this, um, Lucas and I are certainly not experts, um, even with what I've, what I've read and what I, um, have prepared here. Um, this is really just scratching the surface. It, there are a lot of things that we could say, uh, but my hope is to just sort of do a, a nice flyover to give a good introduction to this doctrine, 
um, to give some application points towards the end. Uh, but throughout this episode, as, as it goes on, there are, a, there are a few questions that I think we just need to consider on this topic. Um, the first question we should ask ourselves is, where does the Bible speak about this, if it does at all? Like if you just looked up, he descended into hell Bible verse, you're not going to find one Bible verse that just says Jesus descended to the dead. Um, it's, it's a synthesis of biblical teaching, much like a lot of theological doctrines, just like the Trinity. We don't find the word Trinity just blatantly said in scripture, um, but we can deduce from the many, many, many passages that speak of God as three persons that there is a triune God. Um, another question that we should ask is why would he descend to hell or descend to the dead? What does this even accomplish? So why did Jesus have to do it? Um, why, what would he accomplish? Uh, another question might be, how does Christ's descent to the dead, or sorry, how does Christ descend to the dead if he told the thief on the cross that they would be together in paradise on that day? So a lot of people will look at the passage where there's Jesus and the two thieves on the cross, and there's the one thief who, who seems to be repentant and um, sorrow, sorrowful for the things that he had done. And so Jesus says, you know, you'll be with me in paradise. Um, so how do we how do we square a verse like that with something like the descent to the dead? Um, and lastly, maybe another question to consider is why has much of modern evangelicalism lost this doctrine? Why is this something that is often neglected, uh, misunderstood? Uh, I think that there are a lot of reasons. Um, a big part of it is some of the teaching that came about in the Reformation. And so as heirs of the Reformation, we sort of lost it too. Uh, but that's, those are just some things to consider, some things to think about as we, as we progress through this episode, uh, as we, as we jump in or as we maybe dive and descend into this topic, uh, I think there are a few things that I want to get kind of out there at the outset. So I want to, I want to give you guys a couple of things that this doctrine does not mean, uh, to help as we talk, this will help color what it does mean. Uh, so here are the things that the descent of Christ to the dead does not mean. It does not mean that Christ went to the place of eternal conscious torment. Um, so think lake of fire, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, the place that at the end of times is the eternal state. Christ did not go to that place that we call hell. Uh, second, Christ uh, did not experience any sort of torment. Um, Christ did not go to the place of the dead. He did not go into this place, which the creed calls hell, um, to experience anything more because he experienced it all upon the cross. He bore the wrath of God as he died on the cross in our place, declaring it is finished. So that thus means that the descent is something other than experiencing torment. Uh, next, it does not simply mean that Christ experienced hell's torments upon the cross. So I believe it was maybe Calvin or maybe a couple other people, um, but there are some that say this clause in the Apostles' Creed that says he descended to hell or he descended to the dead, that basically it's a fanciful way to say that Christ experienced the torments of hells on the cross. So it's as if as Jesus is dying, as he's bearing the wrath of God, he is experiencing hell's depths. He is descending into the wrath of God. Um, and... Again, that's, that's something that came about more during the Reformation, the 15, 16, 1700s. Um, but it is a very odd way to speak 
of such a thing, especially if you look at the chronological order of the creed, which I have here. Let me just pull it up. I don't know why I put it way at the bottom. Um, but as you get to the part about Jesus, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. It, there's a very logical progression there. Not even logical. There's just a progression. Uh, being born, uh, or first being conceived, then being born. And then it does skip a bunch, but it goes to suffering under Pontius Pilate. And then being crucified, dying, and then being buried. So there's like three logical steps. Someone's crucified. As they're crucified, their body dies. Uh, and then that person is buried in a tomb. And so then he descends into hell. And then the third day he rises again. And then he ascends. And then it, it goes on from there. So it does feel like a very strange way to speak about the cross. If he descended to the dead or he descended into hell simply means that he experienced hell's torments upon the cross. So I'm saying at the outset that I do not think that is what this doctrine means. And lastly, and these aren't the only four things, but this is just sort of four to keep in mind. Uh, this does not mean that Jesus preached some sort of like last chance or second chance sermon. So in going to the place of the dead, he didn't go there to give the dead some sort of second chance. Um, there's, there's, I think, nothing in scripture that would support such a view. Um, even if people have thought that and believed that, I do not think that that is what this doctrine teaches. So those are the four things that are not part of this doctrine. Um, but here are some of the things that it does mean. Uh, it does mean that Jesus died as all humans died. Jesus was a man. That's something that we confess. We've talked about it a lot, especially as we talk about um, God being man or Jesus being man and God. He, he, he's not just some sort of, um, you know, vapor. He's not some sort of like illusion. Jesus was a man. And as a human man, he experienced death as all people did prior to the resurrection. Jesus experienced all of what it meant and what it means to be human. The difference is he wasn't only human and he did not remain dead. Uh, the reality of death is no longer as it was. So that's something else to keep in mind is that the reality of death is no longer as it was prior to Christ's death and resurrection. So when we think of like, that, I mean, when we think about like even BC and AD, so like before Christ and Anno Domini or whatever, like uh, BC, AD, as we talk about years, uh, the reason Jesus's death is such a pivotal moment in history, it's not only just transformative for Christians, um, it's not just accomplishing our, our, our redemption and our salvation, um, but it's changing the nature of what it means to die uh, after he resurrects. Um, and so those are just a couple of things to bear in mind. And I think as we, as we, before we jump into the Old Testament background, I want to give a quote by Matt Emerson from his book, and then I want Lucas to add anything that he might want to add. But uh, Matt says, Jesus experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried and his soul departed to the place of the dead. And in so doing, by virtue of his divinity, he defeated death and the grave which I thought was just a really good synthesis, a very good summary of what this doctrine teaches. And we're going to extrapolate all the various implications as we go forward. But I think at the outset, it's really helpful, as I've outlined, to, to bear in mind some questions, talk about what it doesn't mean, and then to talk about what it means as we then give the reasons for that. So is there anything you want to bring up here, Lucas, before we go further? Um, yeah. 
there's, I wanted to kind of give, I feel like this is a good, you know, at the beginning summary kind of thing that we can, that we can flesh out as we go through. But question 68 of the, to be a Christian catechism that the Anglican church of North America produces is what does the creed mean by saying that Jesus descended to the dead? And the answer is that Jesus descended to the dead means that he truly died and entered the place of the departed. So it's kind of a basic, not very detailed answer. Um, it almost kind of sounds like, oh, it means he descended to the dead. <laughs> um, that they, they, they give some scripture references that, that come up uh, in these conversations. But I think it's a good summary to kind of realize, like, even if you don't go any further, we're confessing he truly died. You know, he was he crucified, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead. That All of that together um, are different aspects of, of the fact that, that like you said, he, he, he was fully man, and he experienced everything when it comes to, to, to death, the entire process of death as it applies to human beings, because he was truly human being, meaning he truly died and entered the place of the departed. And in the context of what comes before and after the, uh, this line in the creed, you know, this by itself might not tell us a whole lot, but I, but you know, it has its, it has a very important place of the the true death and and the and the the um, result of the crucifixion being true. You know, right. it wasn't it wasn't pretend, it wasn't a show, um, and I you know I think that. This is an okay summary, um, and certainly in the context of a catechism, you don't need to be spending, you know, a ton of time fleshing all this out. But hopefully, we'll be able to flesh out a little more. Particularly, entered the place of the departed. That's the part that I think is where we either just don't understand this doctrine, or potentially can see some areas where it goes wrong. Right. Whether we have different under, like you alluded to, different understandings of what the place of the departed means or is or different understandings of what was going on in that place when Jesus went. Um, you, you alluded to both of those, both of right. those things. Um, and just like a quick, before we move on, just like a quick little anecdote. I remember in high school, um, in youth group, having a conversation with, with one of the leaders there where I, I, for, I totally forget what the conversation was that this, that this came up. But there was some mention of uh, Jesus going to hell after being crucified. And at, at this point in my life, I didn't know what the Apostles' Creed was. <laughs> I We didn't use yeah. it in, in church, you know. So um, it, it wasn't related to the creed that these questions came up. But it, that came up somehow. And then the, the leader said, well, no, he didn't. He Jesus never went to hell. The Bible never says that. And I was super surprised and stumped. Because I was like, oh, the Bible doesn't say that. That's interesting. And it was almost like, to me, the fact that he, you know, to use the, the, the language that I didn't know at the time, the fact that he was crucified, died, and was buried, and then there were three days before he rose again, like, I thought, well, of course he he died. Like, so he, of course he descended to the dead, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, without knowing that's what I was thinking, that was like my almost like default hmm. without knowing what that meant, of course, as, as we'll, you know, talk more about, but, um, 
but then it was like oh wow that you know that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't make it it's not that's not in the bible or whatever and i mean like you said there's no chapter and verse he descended into hell but like um i think it's 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 maybe illustrative of what we're maybe talking about when we say things like this doctrine has either been neglected or even left behind fully depending on on who you are you know i've i've heard of popular evangelical leaders literally saying we need to rewrite the creed uh to to change this line you know like like so most people uh, are probably not so passionate <laughs> that they're actively working against uh confessing this doctrine but it's certainly something that is just kind of there uh something that doesn't get talked about and the the effects of that are conversations you know at, at a five guys in high school where it's like oh yeah it doesn't it's not in the vibe oh okay and just kind of moving on without necessarily recognizing why that thought is there why that doctrine has been taught and also more importantly the implications of either confessing or not confessing it which is which is where we're gonna hopefully like land the plane um in right. in a bit here mm. um so that was i just 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 like a a I didn't even write it in my notes. I just remembered that story like as we were hitting record and I thought it was maybe um, worth sharing. But I think now would be a good time to transition to a little more of the of the of the you know the nitty gritty in terms of the starting with the with the Old Testament background and sort of the the, the context, you know, both theologically but also culturally that um, that this language really fits into. Right, um, which is which is always an important step in in understanding and evaluating any sort of theological claim. Right. Um, yeah. Well, something that we take for granted is just words and their usage. Like this is why it, it can be very important to define terms to understand yeah. what we mean when we use a certain term like heaven or hell. Because I think if you just said if you went out onto the streets anywhere and just asked what is heaven, what is hell. People are going to have, you know, probably caricatures, but ideas of what those things are. You know, heaven's the place with the, the pearly gates and the streets of gold. Uh, hell is the place with the devil and pitchforks. And he's got little, you know, red spiky horns and a pitchfork or whatever. Um, those are cartoony representations that we have in our modern context. Um, but even now, that's not necessarily what heaven and hell means. Like, yes, Christ and the Father... Um, are in a place that we refer to as heaven, but how does that compare to the the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal glory as we're living in the new heavens and the new earth, walking with Christ, seeing him face to face, our faith made sight? Those are different things. The same can be said of the eternal lake of fire and what that means to, to have an eternal um, or maybe... Um, you know, annihilationist view of uh, of the end of the times as far as being separated from Christ. Um, so when we talk about this doctrine, we have to consider both the Old and New Testament just assumptions, the background, the beliefs, the ideologies about the afterlife, about death. Um, you know, so when, when we talk about this, what do, what do you think it means that Jesus died? What does that actually mean? Like we're literally coming up on Good Friday. What, what are we celebrating in his death? Does it just mean that he simply experienced some sort of physical death in his human body? Maybe. But what happened between that death and his resurrection? Where did Christ go? Where did anybody go when they died? Uh, what, what took place on Holy Saturday? Um, 
I don't know, that's that's sort of where we're going to go. And so to, to give us this Old Testament background, we need to recognize uh, how the people of that of that world viewed reality in a, the, uh, a three-tiered cosmology, meaning there were three tiers of existence, so to speak. Um, and Revelation 5.3 and Philippians 2.10 um, speak of in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Um, so there's this conception of, uh, of the heavens, uh, the third heaven, you know, where God dwells, the heavens meaning like the, the stars, the planets, the expanse, um, the sky above the earth, um, then the earth, the physical dwelling of man, and then under the earth. And so these visible and invisible realities, um, what is visible is ob obviously just what we can see on earth. But there exist two separate invisible realities, namely heaven and under the earth. So Revelation 5.3 says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 2.10, uh, dot, dot, dot. So at the name, so sorry, <laughs> so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So just a couple New Testament rep uh, representations of that. And then here's Job 11, 7 through 9. Uh, Job says, um, can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. So in Job here, there's this mention of heavens. There's this mention of Sheol, or we could say under the earth, and then earth and seas. Uh, so this word, which I'm just going to say Sheol, I think that's how you would say it in Hebrew. Some people say like Sheol. Um, I'm just going to say Sheol so people understand what I'm saying here. Um, but S-H-E-O-L. Um comes up time and time again in the Psalms. The Psalms, it, it, I mean, if you just look up the word Sheol, I don't know how many occurrences there are in scripture, but it, it's all over the place in the Psalms. Um, some common synonyms are the pit, uh, the abyss, the deep, the lower parts of the earth. Uh, for example, Psalm 88, three through four. And I just want to say, I'm sorry that I'm just sort of like shotgunning through a bunch of scripture passages, but I'm just trying to paint this very broad, broad brushed picture of what we're getting at here. So again, this is Psalm 88, 3 through 4. For I have had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, uh, whom you no longer remember and who, are and who are cut off from your care. So Psalm 88, I, I forget who wrote it, but a number of mentions there. There's Sheol, there's the pit being abandoned among the dead, lying in the grave. So four different references to this place of uh, the lower parts of the earth. Uh, and then Jonah 2, 5 through 6. We mentioned this a little bit in our episode on Jonah 2, if you want to go back and check it out. Uh, but Jonah says, The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut up behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. And we'll come back a little bit later to Jonah specifically as, it, as Jesus uses that, um, you know, the sign of Jonah in, um, in one of his discourses. But um, as, we, as we understand 
the afterlife, as we understand this three-tiered cosmology, um, those are just like sort of assumptions that Old Testament saints had in their worldview. Um, so when, when we talked about what, what living meant, what dying meant, for people like David, for Moses, for um, Abraham, I mean, really, if you, again, if you look up the word Sheol, um, Hezekiah, um, all these different people have mentions of the pit, of Sheol, of the abyss, of the deep. Uh, this place where when you die, this is where you go. I mean, it's just assumed. My my life is near Sheol, is how Psalm 88 starts. So it wasn't as if this person's saying, I'm going to hell. It, he's saying, like, my life is near the place of the dead. When When we die, we go to this place called Sheol, even if it's hazy what that means. So as... As we understand the underworld, as we understand the afterlife, we sort of have to understand death in its context, what it meant to die prior to Christ. What does it mean to die prior to Christ? Uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 6 through 8 says, For every activity there is a right time and procedure, even though a person's troubles are heavy on him. Yet no one knows what will happen because who can tell him what will happen? No one has authority over the spirit to restrain it, and there is no authority over the day of death. Really interesting translation. Depending on what you have, it might say nobody has authority over the wind. But if you know anything about the term ruach in Hebrew, it can be wind, it can be spirit, it can be referring specifically to the spirit of God. Um, generally, it could be talking about a, a human spirit, um, like a soul, so to speak. Um, but if, if, like tr some if, like some translations say, if no one has authority over the spirit to restrain it, and there is no authority over the day of death. Um, this seems to be showing, um, you know, a little bit about their understanding of death, what it means to to die. And I think I think this is a, a modern concept that no one's going to have a hard time saying. But when you die, your physical body is buried in the earth, and your soul or your spirit leaves that body. Whether it goes to be with the Father or goes somewhere else is not necessarily up to us. It's it's part of <laughs> living on this world, uh, who we live for on this world. Um, but it's the same here, that that this spirit, we can't, we, we have no authority over it. We have no authority over the day of death. And to, to help understand this, I think Peter, 2 Peter 1.14, um, he says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. Since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as the Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. So here Peter is is saying, and he uses the word tent twice, but really he's referring to his the, the, the body that he's living in for a moment. He is soon going to lay aside this tent, this body, but will continue to exist, will continue to live in, a, in another state, another um, invisible reality. And so, again, prior to Christ's death, prior to his resurrection, the reality of death was different. Uh, there was this place called Sheol that people went to. This is, and it wasn't it wasn't hell. It wasn't a place of torment necessarily. Um, and it, we're going to continue to flesh this out. So so bear with me. I appreciate you guys listening to me rambling on here, but I hope I'm being coherent and that it's making sense. But um, specifically of Sheol, Ecclesiastes nine ten says, "Whatever your hands uh, find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work." planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Man, if there was just like an assumed, like this, 
in Ecclesiastes, this again, this is this is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, exploring life, exploring death, uh, how everything is vanity, uh, how you should live for the Lord, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. One of the things that he says is, <laughs> whatever you do with your hands, do with all your strength. Because after you die, when you leave this place, there is no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. And, and he's not talking to just like absolute heathens. He's talking to the people of God. And the assumption is you're going to be going to Sheol. Very, very, very interesting. Um, now, one of the things that I want to point out too is that sometimes this, the, they can speak, sometimes scripture speaks figuratively of Sheol. Um, because Sheol, I think, was more or less the assumption of most people that when they die, they departed to this place of the dead. And what that means, again, I'm going to continue to, to divulge, um, but it doesn't just mean that you go to the ground into a grave and then you just are sleeping. Your soul is separated from your body and it goes somewhere. But sometimes to be threatened with Sheol is to be threatened with death. So like David, for example, Jonah, for example, like I read a little bit ago, to talk about like descending to Sheol means like maybe that they were on the brink of death. So they didn't physically go to Sheol. Um, and in the same way, when they speak of being spared from the pit, being spared from Sheol, they're being spared from death. So the, the Old Testament does not always speak literally of this place as the place of where people are, um, but it's figurative language. Just like even now, some people might say, like, I, I can't necessarily think of like a, you know, pop culture example, but I can imagine that if somebody was like really sick, if they had, a, you know, maybe they had a near-death experience, um, there might be an idiom or um, a figurative way to say like, man, you were, you know, sometimes we say something like, oh, we, he was skating on thin ice, like meaning like, man, you, that ice was super thin. If you went any further, you're going to crash through. It's, it's figurative language, but it, it, it's painting a picture of, of real realities. I mean, ice is real. There is, there is the reality that you can skate on thin ice and you can risk falling through. Um, so just because scripture is speaking figuratively, it does not mean that this place does not exist. Um, but one of the things that we really have to understand, especially when it comes to the Old Testament background, is that there isn't a crystal clear picture of the afterlife. It's not like we can just point to an Old Testament passage and be like, this is what everybody believed. This is the exact experience and reality of the afterlife. Um, it's, it's hazy, but there's this mention all over the place of Sheol, the pit, the abyss, all these different words that are used to speak of this same place, um, even if there was a misunderstanding of what it meant. But we have to remember what, what happens when we get to the Gospels. What happens when we get to the New Testament? In, in Jesus' day, in the apostles' day, one of the big debates going on was if there was an afterlife at all. So there were at least some Jews who taught that there wasn't a resurrection of the dead. There were some Jews that didn't think that there was an afterlife at all. So I think it's safe to say that like there wasn't a super clear cut and dry picture of the afterlife prior to Christ, prior to his death, prior to his resurrection. Um, but we can learn quite a bit about this place, about the cosmology, um, and so forth. And so, uh, as we now transition to the New Testament a little bit, um, I forgot to grab my Bible, so let me grab that, because I'm going to read a passage that I think is really helpful in understanding this. Um, but we have to understand that Sheol appears to be compartmentalized. So when we speak of the place of the dead, Sheol, the abyss, the pit, whatever, uh, 
there's an upper Sheol and a lower Sheol, or what we might call uh, Abraham's bosom, uh, paradise, the, the place of the righteous dead. And then there's a lower Sheol, which is the unrighteous dead, so to speak. So you'd have to imagine that for thousands of years, as people, as people lived and died, minus maybe Elijah, who was carried away into heaven, um, the common experience of humanity was to die physically, their body buried in the ground, and to have their soul depart from their body and go to the place of the dead, where, where, where the soul is kept uh, in upper or lower Sheol. Um, an example of this is Luke 16. Uh, so I'm going to be reading out of the CSB. Uh, this is Luke 16. This is the story uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. And I just want to say, we did read this on that episode three on the essence of the Christian faith. Uh, but it's it's really important to this conversation. And even though some people have taken this to be um, a parable, Jesus uses parables all over the place. But he doesn't like make stuff up. He doesn't necessarily make up different realities. He When he uses parables, he uses real life tangible realities to communicate deeper things. Um, but let's see what Jesus says in this rich man and Lazarus story. Uh, it says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's bosom, depending on your translation. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades... He looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. So let's just look at this picture again. Both of these men have died. Both have been buried. One went to be at Abraham's side while the other is in Hades in torment. And the rich man is looking up and sees Abraham and Lazarus. Wherever both of these dead men are, they can see each other in, in this story. Uh, he, <clears throat> um, so Father Abraham, uh, the rich man called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us father he said then i beg you to send him to my father's house because i have five brothers to warn them so they also won't come to this place of torment so basically the rich man is saying abraham like raise lazarus send him to my that my family's house so that they do not join me in this place of torment but abraham said they have moses and the prophets and they should listen to them no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. So they're, again, we're talking about Lazarus going to this family. And he says, if someone from the dead, someone raises from this place of the dead, explaining what that means and telling them they're going to repent. But no, uh, but he told them if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So again, really interesting uh, text of scripture, really 
maybe difficult to understand because again, it's, it's dealing with realities that we don't typically think about, especially as it pertains to death. Um, but it, again, even, even if Jesus is using a parable, even if Lazarus and this rich man didn't actually exist, as I said, Jesus uses real existence, real reality, things that are real and tangible and in people's minds to communicate a spiritual reality. So yes, this parable is trying to communicate something about the kingdom of God. But at the same time, he's using real life things to help communicate that reality. I have a so question. I want, yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. So one thing that's, that stands out and in, in that parable is that the, the rich man gets sent to, it says, I think a couple times, but at least once it says that he's in Hades, right? And something that I think is helpful, you know, as we're looking at sort of defining terms and making sure we're understanding the language and the ideas behind the words that are being used when, when the people of Israel and, and um, the new Testament writers are speaking on these things. Um, Hades is the wor- the Greek word that translates Sheol in the, right. in the Greek old Testament, the Greek version of the old Testament where, where in Hebrew you would find Sheol, you would find Hades in Greek. Um, so first of all, that's super important to realize like, Hey, I thought you guys were talking about Sheol. Now you're talking about rich man, Lazarus, like different words, but, but, Hades is Sheol, right? Is is important to to, to notice. Um, but what's also interesting, and this is kind of where like my question would come in, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit. I, I can't remember, but it says that the rich man is in Hades, and Lazarus, the the poor man, is in or, or at Abraham's side or at Abraham's bosom, right. What, whatever, yeah. right? And so Hades for this parable keeping in mind it's a parable you know everything you just said whatever but but in the in the context of this parable hades seems to be a place of torment because we're not told that lazarus and the rich man are in hades we're told that the rich man is in hades and he is apparently in torment and he describes it as torment right and if hades is the greek way of speaking of Sheol my you know following that train of thought that my question to to raise um would be how does that fit in or or how 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 do we fit that with the idea that Sheol slash Hades is the place for all the dead if that so makes that's sense. the thing that's that's part of what I'm talking about and that's I'm glad you brought that up because that is making a very helpful distinction is that there are these upper and lower compartments that cannot be traversed as we learn in this parable, as Abraham says in this story. Um, The upper, the place, if we call it Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, some people might say paradise, um, but is a place, I mean, this is, uh, where did it go? Um, uh, So 25, verse 25, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. So where the righteous dwell. So think about the saints of the Old Testament. Um, think about your Hebrews, what, 11 or whatever that has the hall of, hall of faith. Um, Ruth, Boaz, David, Moses, blah, like so on, so forth. Um, that place is a, is a place of comfort, even if it's not what we think of as heaven today. 
in a sense, they, they weren't in agony. Whereas the lower compartment was some sort of place of agony. And I think this is really interesting. Uh, in verse 23, it says, and being in torment in Hades. So as if to say, it's almost as if to say, Lazarus is, in, is comforted in Hades, whereas the rich man is in torment in Hades. So speaking of one location, but they're experiencing different realities in that place. I agree that it could be read the way that you're saying, that maybe Abraham's bosom is in heaven with the father or something, and that you know the rich man is in, in hell or something. Um, but I think, in my understanding, that this, the way that it's being spoken of is just speaking of these two different conceptions within the one place. Just like on earth, there can be people who experience great wealth, great riches, great things, and then there are other people who experience really bad things, um, awful things, horrible sins. I think it's not so hard to think that Sheol can be compartmentalized in the same way. Um, especially as it's almost this holding place, this place of um, uh, almost waiting. And, and something that I failed to mention a little bit ago that I'm going to mention now so I don't forget, um, we have to remember, if, if at the moment of death, everybody's souls, so to speak, prior to Christ went to go to heaven, then like what was Christ's death accomplishing? If people have already been, well, <laughs> this... This is, this is complex because it, it, it challenges a little bit how we think about this because we think about it differently today. Um, but the great enemy of sin, the great enemy of death, the great reality of those things prior to Christ, part of the reason that they were so feared, this, this unknown, this entering into like what lies beyond the here and now of life, if, if everybody just went to be with God in heaven, um, then you have to ask what is Christ's death accomplishing for them and for us, but for them too. Because Christ's death d is retroactive in a sense to, to save even the, I mean, the people of faith from the Old Testament were looking forward. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. Whereas we as Christians today, we look back at Christ and see, look what Christ actually did for us on our behalf. Like Moses would, and Abraham and David, they were looking to Christ and what Christ was going to do for them. What was he going to do? He was going to raise them from the pit. He was going to raise them from death. Not just the fact that they died. They, they did actually die, but he was going to raise them from the place of the dead. That is the great hope that they're waiting for. And so as they're in this place of holding, as they're in this upper part of Sheol, again, Death is not natural. Death is the most unnatural thing we endure because we were not made for death. Death is a result of sin and the fall. So this place of, of waiting, this place of, of, of both comfort and torment, um, again, as we go further, I think it's going to become more clear. So I'm just going to keep trucking, I guess. Um, so as I said, compartmentalized into upper and lower Sheol, um, there almost seems to be this place of lowest Sheol too. So there's, there's upper, lower, and then lowest. Um, Isaiah 14, 9 through 15. This is really interesting. Sheol below is eager to greet your coming, stirring up the spirits of the departed for you, all the rulers of the earth, making all the kings of the nations rise from their thrones. They all respond to you saying, you too have become as weak as we are and have become like us. 
your splendor has been brought down to Sheol, along with the music of your harps. Maggots are spread out under you, and worms cover you. Mornings, uh, sorry. Morning star, you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. So very interesting passage, uh, perhaps speaking of some earthly king, perhaps also like in another way, speaking of Satan's own rise, so to speak, and then fall. Um, but there are a couple passages that do seem to speak of this lower um, other part of Sheol. Um, maybe another word is, I'm just going to say Abaddon. I don't, I don't know if that's the way that you would say it. But in Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more do human hearts? Um, so there's, what is Sheol? What is Abaddon? Um, another one is uh, Tartarus. I'm just going to say Tartarus. I think that's how you would say that. Second Peter 2, 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, I mean, Peter's speaking very specifically about a holding place. He literally says, being kept for judgment. So if he didn't spare the angels who rebelled, but cast them into hell, or Hades, delivered them in chains of utter darkness, um, it's interesting. Uh, Sam Renahan, in his book, specifically on this, um, when he says, cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness, it's actually, literally, tartaricized them. Like the word Tartarus is there, but it's used like, you know how, you know how you'd like pulverize somebody? Um, like to, um, basically what, what it means to cast them into hell, God Tartarusized them, which is hard to say. It's not a word, um, but he, it's, you know, Tartarus-ized them. Yeah, so you can think the, it, that's a, Greek uses a lot of participles. Uh, just in the, just the way the language works, which is basically making a noun into a verb or a verb mm-hmm. into a noun. And so that's saying like the noun Tartarus, kind of turning it into a verb. Right. It, so instead of, in, you know, so in English, instead of saying, you know, cast them into Tartarus or, or, or you know, whatever, um, it w- we, in English, we would, we would say Tartarusized. And right. it's, 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 a, it's a, just a grammatical feature of Greek that's a lot more common in Greek than English. So a lot of like it it's it's interesting like I like, you know, learning learning Greek you see a lot a lot of the phrases that that we translate as like active verbs, like Jesus went and preached in Galilee or something, like that's actually saying like Jesus went pre- you know, Jesus went in preaching kind of thing. You, you know, like it, it it's a, it's just like a, a trick a tricky translation translation thing, but it is it it gives a much different feel, I think, right. to mm-hmm. to try and conceptualize a, a, more of this verbal motion than just, you know, cast into target. You know, like it it it's not like it means anything different, you know, but but it is it, it's just kind of an interesting little feature you know, of, of, of Greek grammar that is sometimes lost in translation just because English just works differently. You know, like we've talked about in our Bible translation episode, it's just, it's not right or wrong. It's just, 
a different language. So um, exactly, it, it is really yeah, it, it is really interesting to yeah yeah, and Tartarus and is just interesting. Like it's just like a whole there, there's just this handful of vocabulary words besides Hades and Sheol for both for both Hebrew and Greek, like like Abaddon being another Hebrew word um, used in these contexts, and then Tartarus being another Greek word used. Yeah, it's it's. It's 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 tricky. There's a lot. There's a lot here, and this <laughs> is why it's sure. not so simple as just like heaven and hell. Like the again, yeah. the conceptions, the the uh, the way that these words are used were just different. And and part of the problem is we often like here in the CSB, it just says cast them into hell. That, that means something totally different than is really Tartarus. interesting too. Like yeah. traditionally, like if you go back to the the first english bibles like and especially like the king's james the king james like the first major ones that had a big impact on you know just english as a language but also uh how english-speaking people remember biblical phrases and stuff sheol hades tartarus gehenna all the all the words that 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 we've talked about in the ones we haven't talked about yet um are are just sort of they're all translated into English in the King James with hell. Right. Which is not a wrong translation, but the problem is you move on 400 years and you've got 400 more years of, of, of changes in culture in terms of just how people use the word hell to how they conceive of it. You've got all the influences um, from art and, and literature, you know, and things just kind of change and it, it's not wrong to say that Hades is hell, but it is wrong to say that Hades and Sheol and Tartarus and the pit and all of these different ideas are all exactly synonymous right. in the way that we as English speakers in the modern era think about the English word hell. Hmm. And that's, a, I think, a Maybe not the maybe not the most significant, but I think that's a significant like factor in the complexity that we're sort of seeing as we're even just walking through these texts. For sure, we're, we're seeing this like new, you know, maybe nuance or just just like multi layered explanations for the for this idea of of the afterlife, the destination of of, of people who have died, like. That isn't, it's just not caught with one English term. Mm. And, and traditionally, that one English term has been used in a lot of different contexts, which when we think about it today and aren't aware of that, we can miss things like these, this compartmentalization and things like that. So I think that's, that's just a, an interesting thing to 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 note you know just to just to pile on more things to keep in mind but <laughs> well that's no that's that's a really good transition because where i was going is to say that up to this point we've been talking about temporary place of holding um sheol hades the pit abyss so on um but if we compare to the words of everlasting torment so th that's that's more in line with what we mean by hell i think today when people speak of oh you're going to hell they mean like in the end of times, you're going to be in the, the final place of eternal torment or something. Um, those words, Gehenna, fiery furnace, outer darkness, lake of fire, those are terms that we find in scripture that are speaking of a more finite, or sorry, a more final and finished 
existence. Um, basically, and this comes from Sam Runahan, but um, a, a synthesis, a summary real quick of the Bible's teaching about the, the underworld and the afterlife is this. And this is what he says. Sheol is under the earth, in, in quotes, under the earth. Uh, again, we said it, it's probably not a physical spatial place. Um, I didn't mention that earlier. Um, but just like heaven isn't necessarily a physical spatial place, um, they speak of it as being under the earth. But um, So Sheol is under the earth, the invisible abode of all the dead. It is a tiered or compartmentalized place. The righteous inhabited Ab- uh, Abraham's bosom being comforted there, whereas the wicked inhabit a lower compartment, Hades, or the abyss, and there they suffer torment. The farthest reaches of the pit, the deepest tier of Sheol, are reserved for the imprisonment of wicked angels. Sheol is a temporary place of confinement. Wicked men and angels will be banished to the outer darkness of the lake of fire, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, to quote Revelation 20 verse 10. So that was a synthesis of everything we've covered so far. So I hope that that synthesis was at least clear in some of what we've been trying to communicate is that there's heaven, earth, under the earth. And when we speak of under the earth, we're speaking of what happens after the moment of death um, as you enter into these different compartments. Um, so now this is, we're, we're getting really close to, to beginning our conclusion, and our, our, our final thoughts here. Um, but I, I just wanted to share one other really important, well, there might be a couple others, but this is the longest one. Uh, another New Testament passage that's really, really important to understanding what is happening here. First, I'm going to quote the psalm that um, is being quoted in Acts. So Psalm 16, 9 through 10 says, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So that's David in Psalm 16 saying, My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So that's, the, that's David in the Old Testament. Here's what Peter says as he's preaching in Acts 2, 22 through 36. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, he's summarizing what has just happened to the last couple of months. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or as Lucas said earlier, Sheol and Hades are one and the same, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here, Peter directly quotes that psalm, or at least, you know, his uh, maybe more enumerated version of it, but it's the same thing. But Peter is saying that David is talking about Jesus. And this is what he goes on to say. Brothers, I say to you with confidence, with confidence, I am certain about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried 
and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. So we're talking about Jesus not being abandoned to Sheol. Like this should be just like definitive proof here that Jesus did go to Sheol, whatever that means. Because Peter is saying, I'll back it up. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, nor would his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to, to my Lord, sit at my, sit at my right hand uh, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. A lot of things that you can unpack here. We could have a whole episode on Acts 2. Uh, super good, super important, um, but I think pretty clear teaching, first of all, that like not being abandoned to Sheol. So even if David meant to be speaking of himself, uh, that, you know, God, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your holy one see corruption. Peter takes this to be speaking as a prophet, looking forward to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, as a man, just like all of us are humans, experienced death and the reality of death as all humans did. He went to Sheol. He went to the place of the dead, but he was not abandoned there, meaning he was not left there like the rest of humanity had been for so long. He had loosed the pangs of death. He raised him from this place. He came back from the grave and has made him both Lord and Christ. Super, super interesting, super, super important, but I think does help paint a really good picture of what we're talking about here when we speak of Christ going to the place of the dead. Um, and so maybe to understand, okay, so now that we've established that there is a place of the dead, now that we've established the reality that, okay, Jesus went to that place of the dead, why did he go to the place of the dead? Well, for the easiest answer is because he was a man and that's what humans did. So then maybe we have to ask, what does he accomplish in going to the dead or what happens on Holy Saturday before he's resurrected? Um, I think a really interesting thing to look at is what Jesus has to say about uh, the sign of Jonah. Uh, we mentioned this when we talked about Jonah. I mentioned it a little bit ago. Um, but just as David's Psalms speak of military victories as deliverance from Sheol, so also Jonah described his survival in the fish as deliverance from Sheol. So as I was mentioning earlier about figurative language, David speaks of military battles, like winning a war as being delivered from Sheol. In the same way, Jonah says surviving in the fish is being delivered from Sheol. And right now I'm quoting Sam Runahan directly. Uh, the fulfillment of prophecy and typology, so the fulfillment of prophecy and typology is greater than the prophecies or types themselves. Like that should just be a no-brainer. Uh, and just as what David describes in figures, Jesus experienced in reality, so being rescued and raised up from Sheol, so it is with Jonah. 
Jonah spent three days in the belly of an animal in the hearts of the seas. Jesus will spend three days in the belly of Sheol itself in the heart of the earth. What Jonah experienced figuratively, being taken down to the belly of Sheol, Jesus experiences literally, descending to Sheol itself. And as Jonah emerged alive from the fish after three days, so Jesus will emerge in resurrection from Sheol. So that was, that was Sam Runahan um, speaking directly on the topic of Jesus and Jonah and what it meant that Jesus was uh, giving a sign greater than Jonah um, when he's asked about that. Um, I think it's really important that we have to say, though, that the descent was not further suffering for Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to the place of the dead um, to suffer, uh, but to conquer, to conquest, to, to, to basically to conquest Satan. Um, he didn't descend to suffer, but to subdue. And maybe this is where we real quick touch on um, what it means when J Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, I think what it means pretty plain and simply is that in experiencing death before his resurrection, Jesus and that thief went to Abraham's bosom, also called paradise, and Jesus was there with him. It's not that hard to conceive of. Paradise doesn't necessarily just mean heaven. Um, I, Sam, Sam Renahan does a good job explaining paradise, but how um, sometimes paradise in scripture is used very generally. I mean, Eden is referred to as a paradise. Um, the, uh, the temple even as a, a figure of the heaven, like, so the, the physical temple as a, a figure of the greater heavenly temple can even be referred to as a paradise. So it does not mean always a literal place of eternal joyousness. Um, paradise can simply just be this place of, um, of comfort at Abraham's bosom, so to speak. Um, and again, as Abraham's offspring, that who's the child of promise, like that, this is why it's referred to as Abraham's bosom, as opposed to David's bosom or Jeremiah's bosom. Um, these are the people of Abraham who will then be redeemed. And we are a part of that. But obviously before Christ, before, you know, we're Christians now, but before Christians, it was Israelites, it was Hebrews, it was Jews who were descendants of Abraham physically, but also spiritually. Um, so last couple of things that we're going to mention. I'm also going to read a brief excerpt of Sam Renahan's book, and then we'll just go over some like application points, and then we'll end, just to give you an idea. So we're, we're coming to an end, I promise. Um, but Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. I think when we think about the descent, when we think about Christ being raised from the place of the dead, this just this just like is really interesting. Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So one thing that Sam says in, in his book is that as people who would have probably, at least some of them, understood a reality of Sheol, of the, the place of holding, this place of waiting, uh, even if it's a place of quote-unquote comfort, it isn't the eternal place of comfort. It's not with God, in the presence of God. What, what Paul might be saying here is being made alive with Christ. Obviously, that's speaking of you know being made alive versus dead in trespasses is, is spiritual. But he says, he also raised us up with him and seated us in the heavens. 
So as opposed to being people who go to Sheol, we have been raised up with him and seated in the heavens. So this is what I mean by death after the resurrection has a reversal of reality. Death is no longer all people go to Sheol. God's people, the offspring of Abraham, however you want to refer to the church, the body, the bride, are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Um, or as Paul says a couple other times, you know, it is better to be with the Lord um, than on the earth, but for your sake I remain. Basically, that's my very loose translation. Um, the reality is, as Christians, we no longer go to the place of the dead under the earth, but we're in the presence of the Father with, with, with Christ in heaven. So you have to ask, where do the other people go? They still go to Sheol, to the compartment that isn't the compartment that was liberated. So what Christ did in his dissension was to, to conquer in the sense that he's, it's a conquest. He's, he's proclaiming his victory. Um, I'll, I'll say a little bit more here in a second, but I want to quote Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God and make atonement for the sins of the people. Again, as we begin to understand the descent, as we begin to understand Sheol, this passage takes on a bit of a different meaning. It isn't just that he died for us, that he's a great high priest for us in an earthly sense or even a heavenly sense, um, but being made like us in every single way means that, again, he experienced death just like all people do. And so that, it, so that is a really important word. If you're a preacher, you know that. If you're, a, if you're a, you know, just an average layperson, you should know that the words so that or therefore are telling you what something means. So that through his death, through Jesus dying, he might destroy the one holding the power over death and free those who were held in slavery. He's not just speaking of spiritual slavery. Yes, that's an aspect of it, but it's also speaking of those who were held in Sheol to be, uh, to be taken up. So Jesus partook of the same things that humanity does and on our behalf, and he delivered us from death. Through his own death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, as he says, the devil. Uh, death in all times, and this is still the reality, death is the separation of the soul from the body. Prior to the resurrection, all souls descended to Sheol. And so the doctrine of the descent teaches that Christ experienced true death as was common to mankind and that through that death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That was, again, sort of my synthesis. And now, um, bear with me as I get to this page real quick. But I, I just had to read this full sort of excerpt from Sam Renahan's book. This is on page 83. So he's talking about other arguments that are more like being deduced as opposed to like this is just the scripture. Um, so he's speaking of diabolical plans. So this is kind of interesting. 
The second supplemental argument for the descent has to do with the statement that Paul makes about Satan, about Satan and the demons, uh, their expectations relative to Christ's death. Keep in mind that Satan and his demons orchestrated Christ's crucifixion. Satan entered Judas to bring about Jesus's betrayal, Luke 22, 3. And this is the quote of 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 8. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's end quote. Paul is reflecting on God's master plan, God's victory in Christ through death and resurrection. He says that the rulers of this age, or demonic powers, did not understand God's purposes in the death of Christ. This means that they did not realize that they were bringing about their own defeat and destruction. They were accomplishing God's will, not their own. This tells us that the powers of Hades expected Christ's soul to descend to Sheol and to remain there, because that's what happened to humans, even the righteous ones. So again, I'm, I'm going off of the quote real quick. You have to imagine that as, as the demons, as Satan, as they were scheming to bring about the death of Christ, because you have to imagine, because a lot of people thought that Christ was going to come to establish an earthly kingdom and then to rule forever, even Jesus' disciples kind of thought that's what was going to happen. You have to imagine that Satan and the demons, as they sought to kill him, to put him to death, we're hoping that he would then descend to the place of the dead where all people, even the most righteous people, went and were held forever. Because if they killed Christ and he just went to heaven, what does that accomplish for them? Couldn't he just like come back? Um, so to go back into the quote, Satan's power over mankind called the power of death, Hebrews 2.14, is that by tempting man into sin, man lived from the beginning with an imperfect afterlife, a separation of soul and body, a broken and incomplete existence. Death's power separates the soul from the body, gathering souls in Sheol, albeit separated between righteous and unrighteous. So Satan thought that if he could kill the Christ, he could bring the, the Christ's soul to Sheol and imprison it there. But what happened? First, Christ laid down his life. No one took it from him. Second, Christ laid down his life as a ransom to God. God led the sheep to the slaughter and Christ was silent. Christ poured out his life as an offering. He paid the price to free people from Sheol once and for all. He destroyed the one who had the power of death. He proclaimed his victory and God raised him from the dead. God did not abandon his soul to Sheol, but resurrected him, lifting him up and exalting him. What a reversal. So Paul is right that if the rulers of this age had understood God's purposes in Christ, they never would have crucified the Christ. Dude, I read that and I was like, man, that is so good. Something you, again, you don't just like directly see that in scripture, but as, as you read theologically, as you read canonically, as you get a picture of the whole of what is happening under, and again, this is in the middle of the book. So he's been making a bunch of arguments up to this point. Again, read this book by Sam Runahan. It is so good. We're not getting paid to endorse it. It is just that good. Um, I thought that was really a really interesting way to think about it is that in the quote unquote plans of Lucifer and the, the demons, even they expected that if we kill him, he's going to descend to Sheol as all humans actually do. Even if we think that he is the son of God, even if we know who he is, in his human soul, he's going to be sent to Sheol and he will remain there. That was the expectation. Uh, but obviously, as we know, that, that is not the case. Um, so I hope 
I know this is probably very long-winded. You're probably sick of hearing my voice. Maybe you want to hear more of Lucas's voice. So before we start going to applications, Lucas, what else do you want to add? What questions do you have? Anything to note? No, no, not really. I, I, I think application is just kind of where I want to go because <clears throat> as I'm taking this all in, inter- you know, all at once and seeing the way each of these things connect, like in terms of how we understand the word Sheol and Hades, how we understand the relationship between the soul, you know, before death and after death and especially 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 the relationship between the the action of Jesus's descent and the result of that not just being you know an incidental thing that happens to take up a day so that you have 3 days you know <laughs> but um you know it, it's not just where he happened to go while he waited for the resurrection but it's an integral part of the story of crucified, buried, descended, raised raised on the third day because it is exactly that journey that the human soul experiences after death. Or, or I guess maybe, you know, experienced after death, maybe. Um, it, like, it really does, these pieces kind of, for me at least, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling them kind of slide into place it, 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 it feels like there's a this is one of those topics where there's a lot of moving parts. So <laughs> when when you when you kind of get into any individual one, it kind of feels like, okay, I get it, but so what? You know, and it kind of feels like that for me at least as I'm listening, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. These things make sense to me, but I'm kind of like not seeing where they're headed. But but seeing them all together you know i feel like you need a lot of pieces before you can start putting them together but once you put them together you can you can look back and see how they all fit from old testament to new testament that's really interesting that you say that and in his book he has this image that he uses a couple times do you know the difference between a maze and a labyrinth no so a maze has dead ends so to speak, oh, a labyrinth oh. is a similar idea, but doesn't have dead ends. Oh. So it might have longer routes to... Eventually, you're going to get to the end, but it's much more complex, uh-huh. more convoluted. Um, and so he, he uses that imagery of like, we're navigating a labyrinth. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot to this. It's, it's difficult. It's complex. Um, but hopefully in the end, it all synthesizes well. So I hope that's what I've done a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, that's what's happening for me. Um, so I have to imagine it's happening, uh, hopefully, to everyone listening as well. But but I do think that what I'm walking away with right now, what, what's sort of crystallizing in my mind as we're, you know, we're recording this on Palm Sunday, we're releasing it on Tuesday of Holy Week, um, we're, we're marching towards Holy Saturday itself. And as part of that, you know, obviously, we're, we're, we're either approaching or in the midst of Holy Week right now. And this is this is why we wanted to release this episode at this time. Um, but what I'm what I'm just really walking away with is this notion that r- recognizing the ways in which the, the descent of Christ, it, it's not accidental. It's not just convenience you know like it was a convenient place to hang out for two days before raise you know however you want to think of it but it's 
the idea of Christ descending into Hades, hell, Sheol, the dead, however, you know, I don't really care how we want to translate it or, or phrase it. That is part and parcel of, it's an integral part of the act of redemption that, you know, we refer to as the crucifixion or, or however we want to shorthand it. That It is his sufferings, his humiliation, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his descent, and specifically where he's descending, um, his resurrection, his ascension. You, you don't get to just pick and choose what parts are important. And that's what makes it so incredible to have these pieces start to slide in where it's this one piece over here that I didn't have a problem confessing, but didn't, like I said, never really spent a ton of time thinking through. I'm now seeing how it really is. It's not just something that I believe in. It's not just something that I agree with or that I'm comfortable with. It is all those things. But I'm seeing more now how it is just a link in the chain that (laughs) that it's not just something, you know, alongside this chain of events that we think of as the atonement that we think of, of, of Christ's redemptive work, you know, it's, but it is literally just part of it, you know, just, you know, it's not maybe featured as heavily as things like the resurrection or, or the actual crucifixion. And I think that makes sense and that's fine, but it is every bit as much a part of that story, that event, you know, or, or series of events that are the, you know, cosmic metaphysical literal real impact and results of christ's work on the cross and and following that we are joined into um as christians as those who have been you know as we're when we're baptized we're baptized into christ's death and what does that mean where what we're seeing what it means. It means he's dead. He's buried. He descends into to Hades and he frees us, all of us, going back prior to um, Christ's life and, and, and all of us who have, have, who have followed after him in time. And, um, you know, maybe that's a little more heady than I wanted to be as far as like application goes. But, but that for me, that's like the application point. Of like right. take, taking such a such a painstakingly detailed look through all of these passages to put these pieces together has a really valuable payoff, I think, in application of this is the gospel. You know what I mean? Um, this is the story of Christ's redemptive work. This is a piece of that story that we don't always get to see or talk about because it because it's hard to talk about, because it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't really matter what the reasons are. Um, I think that's my big takeaway and my big application is just like, this is part of it. And it's not just there because it is, but it's part of it, you know? Um, and I, I just think that's, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy yeah. to see it all kind of, like have, have like a moment of clarity and just see all the connections. It's like, Dang, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, if yeah. everything that we've said is true, like if up to this point, you know, where people went prior to Christ, if all people went to the place of the dead, like you're saying, part of the application is just the the cosmic alteration of reality that Christ that Christ accomplishes in his death, burial, descent, and resurrection. 
I mean, he's changing the reality of what it means to die. Also changing the reality of hope, of assurance. Like, not only did Christ endure it all. Like, sometimes when the Bible speaks of two polar things, it's meant to encompass them and everything in between. So the highest heavens, the lowest depths of the sea, that's meant to be like, there's nothing in between that isn't being like being spoken about. Um, and so in a similar way, Christ literally descends from the presence of the Father in the incarnation, right? Becomes a man, lives on the earth, is crucified. He actually physically dies, descends into death, into the place of the dead, is, res is resurrected, ascends back into glory. Christ has endured it all, all on our behalf. He came as a willing sacrifice to die for you and me, to give us life, to give us life eternal, yes, with him in heaven uh, one day in glory, but also to give us confidence, hope, or assurance. Because again, as I said, there was some cloudiness about death. There was real reason to fear death for people that lived before Christ, not understanding what was to come. Even if you had a vague hope, even if you were intimate with Yahweh even, for people like Moses, for David, for the prophets, <laughs> they still didn't have the assurance that we have as Christians today. And that's something that we take for granted. I have to, I think, be frank and admit that we take for granted the, the, the grace that has been extended to us, the assurance the hope, the confidence that we can have to walk into death. There's a reason that we can say, it is well with my soul. There's a reason that we can sing songs of great hope despite life's great difficulties. Like you have to imagine cancer diagnoses, COVID-19, uh, the constant threat of like any numerous things that could happen. You could literally be driving to the grocery store and get hit by a drunk driver. Those realities, though terrifying, though horrible, though painful, difficult for those who remain after we leave, we have no reason to fear what lies beyond because we'll, we'll be in the presence of our Lord and Savior who endured all the things on our behalf that we no longer have to endure. There's great hope there. That is, that is like the, one of the biggest applications we can, we can take. Um, someone asked on Twitter, we sort of posed, at least I posed like, hey, like what are things you want to know about this? Um, someone basically asked, like, why does it matter? What do we gain or lose when we affirm or don't affirm this doctrine? And like you said really well, we're not just like affirming a doctrine just to say like, oh, check, I believe this one. Um, we're in a sense confessing the gospel. This is the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Holy Saturday, what we're about to come up on, isn't just the day in between death and resurrection. It is the day of all. Co cosmic alteration, a, a dramatic shift in realities of death. That is, man, if there's a day to be celebrated, Holy Saturday is that day. To look at this, I mean, literally seven, six days from now, um, to, to wake up, to wake up Saturday morning with a reflection upon like, man, the grace that has been extended to me, the hope, the, the, the hope and the assurance that I have that I can walk in today, that if I were to die, that I would be in the presence of my beloved Savior with him forevermore, would not be separated from him. Even if I were in the place of quote-unquote comfort in Sheol, it is nothing like being in the presence of, of, of my Savior. Um, like That's what we lose. We lose some of our hope. We lose some of our assurance. Um, and just by way of like just driving home even other theological points, 
like this speaks to Christ's humanity and divinity. If there was ever a doctrine that spoke of Christ as being both God and man, this is a big one. Because as a man, Christ endured all that it meant to be human. But as God was able to not be held there, but to be raised from that place and not just raised, but to liberate, to conquer, to, to destroy death, to, to give hope for, for life eternal. Like that, this doctrine is like, I don't want to say like the linchpin, but it's a big one that we can use in talking about the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Um, and just to, to now wrap up, following his death for sin, which is what we're also about to celebrate. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Something that I, I often probably take for granted. Following that death, Jesus journeys to Hades, to Sheol. If we're going to call it the city of death. He rips the gates off the hinges. He liberates Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John the Baptist, the rest of the Old Testament faithful, ransoming them from the power of Sheol, from the power of death. They waited there for so long, having not received what was promised, um, so that their spirits would be, made, would be made perfect along with the saints of the new covenant. After his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven and brings the ransomed dead with him so that now paradise is no longer down, quote unquote, near the place of torment, but is up, quote unquote, in third heaven, the highest of heavens where God dwells. That is like my sort of maybe cheesy illustrative conclusion to this conversation. So um, I don't have anything else that I really want to say. So let's descend out of this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for thanks for uh, coming along on this journey with us. If you've made it this far to to wrap up um, as sort of a concluding prayer, I, I figured uh, it was appropriate to to confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That is going to do it for today. Um, a bit of a doozy of an episode, but quite a good one, if I do say so myself. I appreciate all the hard work that you especially put into preparing for this and just being able to communicate a boatload of information. Um, and I appreciate uh, the effort because I know what the effort is. <laughs> and super big thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode for listening today, um, as well as any day. And if you'd like to connect with us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast. Also, you can reach us by email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear feedback, questions, ideas for future episodes, um, especially on big episodes like this. It, it, you know, it's probably when, when you see that the, the time is this long, I'm sure there are some people who maybe skip out till next week. But um, those are often the episodes with the most, I think, interesting talking points because that's right. part of why that takes so long is because there's right. just some topics that just really 
gets us going, you know, and, and, and this is definitely one of them. So we'd love to continue to engage on this topic, but anything and everything, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and until next time, we'll catch you later. Peace. Peace.